I am one of the few candidates in the field that Donald Trump has never tweeted at or acknowledged. For a young person now, you're looking at a less than 50% chance of doing better than your parents. I will share what's going on with aliens with the American people unless it's just too damn scary to share. The pill! All right, clappy claps. And we're good. Welcome back to another episode of Off the Pill Podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Well, first of all, we have David Choi in the moderator seat. We have Michelle Fon joining us as a co-host. And we have pretty popular right now, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. So crazy. I need this like help to the chief. You can't you can't hear it, but there's a lot of applause going So again, this is um I've been tweeting and stuff about it all week that I'm pretty terrified. This is very different for me. Um, but thank you so much for being here in our little our little setup right here in LA. Not at all, man. I, I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, and you and I have been uh, in touch for a little while. Like I, I've been looking forward to this for a while. I've been wondering, do you actually run your Twitter? Because I was wondering if I was talking to you in you know in DMs or is it someone else? It it's me with a little plus sign next to it. <laughs> like oh, so, okay, sometimes right. other people will like dip in there and do stuff. Yeah. But all like the um, tweets about like like you were talking about like the um like basketball and football. Is that I'm assuming That's it's definitely you. me. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'd be very troubled if someone else pretended to uh, to take over my sports fandom right. and make me like, you know, 49ers fan or some bullshit. Oh, oh. I just thought I was a 49ers fan. <laughs> You're a Jets that's fan, that's right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, my teams are terrible. Jets? Um, it's Your Jets, team? Mets. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Nets, I suppose you'd have to say now. I was a long time Knicks fan Knicks, for okay. my entire life until they dumped Jeremy Lin, honestly. Oh. And then I was like, Fuck this shit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how do you feel about that? I'm, I'm, I'm sure you Because Jeremy Lin was the bright, brightest spot of being a Knicks fan for right. years. Mm-hmm. And then they drop him. And then you're like, why did you drop him? And you'd put up with so much stuff leading up to that time. So then I became a Nets fan because Jeremy okay. I was playing there. And right. then he left. And um, now uh, I'm still a Nets fan because uh, now I'm friendly with the incoming owner, uh, Joe Tsai, who's oh, okay. um, Taiwanese-Canadian. I don't know if you, you know about well, I know the ownership's changing, right? The ownership's changing yeah. from uh, Prokhorov, the Russian oligarch, who spent to, all that money. to Joe Tsai, who's like this Taiwanese-Canadian uh, badass. Uh, he's essentially, like, he went to high school and college in America, so he's essentially, in my mind, like, you know, pretty American. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's going to be the first Asian NBA owner, I believe. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, so he's going to own the Brooklyn Nets. So if you have no sports allegiance hmm. in the NBA... And you're, uh, you know, like open to a new team and might be the Brooklyn Nets. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's, I didn't even know that, honestly. I'm a bad Asian for not knowing that. Um, so you, you were a fan of Jeremy Lin, like you said. How do you feel about Melo then? Oh, well, you know, I mean, now Melo's out of bad rap. Um, so Melo should clearly be in the league. Uh, and I hope the Nets sign him. Um, but at the mm-hmm. time when they dumped Jeremy Lin, uh, you know, you had this a little bit of the sense that Melo was not, too upset that they dumped Lynn, and so there was a period when I was sort of sad about Mello. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's true. You do actually watch basketball, clearly. <laughs> you know a lot <laughs> about it, and you do do your own tweets. I was just always wondering. You know, you never know. Um, you know, if you had a, a basketball ghostwriter. Yeah, that'd be pretty difficult. Oh, one, <laughs> one of the reasons why I wanted to come on with you all is that, that I'm really a pretty normal dude. I mean, you'd have to be a fairly mm-hmm. weird person to run for president, so there is that whole thing. <laughs> Uh, but the things that you like, I probably like too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, you know, just. I think that's uh, one of the reasons why. I mean, I gravitate towards. I mean, I, I, I told you from the very beginning. Like, I don't know why you would want to be on the show because I don't know much about politics. And you said that's exactly why you want to do it. Well, first, uh, Asian Americans are not that into politics generally. Mm-hmm. Uh, we vote at lower levels. We donate money at lower levels. We run for office at lower levels. And I tell people very plainly, it's like when you're growing up and certainly the way I grew up, it's not like your parents were like, you're going to be president someday. <laughs> it was <laughs> like, get good grades, make a good living, do something uh, reliable and consistent. Uh, and politics is not something certainly that was emphasized in my household. I think that's true mm-hmm. in most Asian Americans' households. And so... One thing I'm I'm grateful for is that I think my campaign can help energize Asian Americans in a different way. But if you arrive to the scene, like you just said, where you're not that into politics, yeah. that would be totally normal. Mm-hmm. And uh, to me, it's one of the, you know, the things I'd like to help change um, because 
if we don't get politically engaged at some point, then things are just going to keep on changing in ways that we might not like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the only time that I really got into it was when Trump was running, right? So I, I mean, that's when I finally was like kind of getting interested. And I guess that's the one thing you can say that he did do is bring a lot of interest. I mean, like you said, it's like a reality show and he's a star. So he got a um, lot of people to care about politics. <laughs> I will say that. Um, and then now, again, talking to a lot of my friends, they all know who you are. Um, nice. They do. They do. But I will say there is some pessimism where they everybody keeps telling me, because I don't really know that much, and I'm assuming sure. they do know more. They keep telling me, like, yeah, we love Andrew Yang, but there's no way he's going to win. Well, uh, stranger things have happened in American politics, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. So right now I'm at 3%. Uh, nationally, and I was 5% in one early state poll. And just like the people watching this right now, most folks in Iowa and New Hampshire have not tuned in and have no idea who they're voting for. Right. So anyone who tells you that they know what's going to happen is lying because no one knows what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> like, no matter what data you have, a, you know, you have your hands on. Uh, and the fact that we've gone from nowhere to sixth in the polls, and I'm going to be on the debate stage uh, in Houston mm -hmm. this week, um, to me, that's actually a harder leap to make than being in sixth place, raising millions of dollars, being in all the mainstream news outlets, and then going from sixth to first. In part because the honest truth is that if you look at can the candidates who are above me, um, people have reservations about, frankly, all of them. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess nobody thought those same people said, "Oh, there's no way Trump was going to win." So right, there yeah. was a point when there was a lot. Of, there were a lot of people that said, "There's it no way Obama was going to win." Yeah, you know. And I said, too, it's like, you know, you guys, this is going to date me a little bit. Bill Clinton kind of came out of nowhere. He was like the no-name governor out of Arkansas. No one was like, Clinton's going <laughs> Clinton's to come and save the day. Like, so uh, stranger things have happened mm -hmm. in American politics than my becoming president in 2020. Right. Uh, you're, one of your main messages in your campaign is UBI. I'm sure you've talked about it a million times. But for some of our listeners that don't really know what that is, we have a lot of young, younger listeners. What what exactly is that? Uh, so you know, universal basic income is a policy where every citizen gets a certain amount of money to meet your basic needs uh, to do whatever you want with. So my plan, the Freedom Dividend, would put $1,000 a month into the hands of every American starting at age 18. So if you're 18, you'd get $1,000 a month. If you're 16 and then you wait two years, you'd get $1,000 a month. Mm -hmm. Now that seems incredibly dramatic, but this is... Uh, a plan that was approved by the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress in 1971. This was a plan that was championed by Martin Luther King in 1968. This is a plan that has sort of been adopted in one state, Alaska, where everyone in Alaska gets between one and $2,000 a year in oil money. So if you're a family of four, you're getting $8,000 in Alaska. And what I'm saying to the American people is that technology is the oil of the 21st century where now your data, our data, is worth more than oil. And, and that's a true fact. And you all, in many ways, are, are an example of this 21st century economy. And here we are in your beautiful Southern California... Uh, David's house. Yeah. <laughs> Home slash studio. But, it, I mean, it's awesome. Like, this uh, conversation is going to be uh, seen or heard by hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. I mean, that, that's something that's very recent. It's like a new innovation. And there are many things that are happening in our economy that are unprecedented. So if we cling to this notion that everyone's going to work a nine to five and you're going to get paid you know, 12 bucks an hour and it's going to work out, it's going to work out for fewer and fewer people over time. And in my view, this is why Donald Trump won in 2016, is that more and more Americans are feeling like it's not working for them. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, again, those same people keep because I, I asked them because I want to know, like, oh, what questions should I ask? Because I don't know enough. Um, a lot of them, and I've seen your answer to how are you going to pay for this? Um, and, and you bring up Amazon and the VAT tax. I don't completely understand what a VAT tax is. Can you explain that, like, really dumbed down, though? Sure. So Amazon's a trillion-dollar tech company paying zero in taxes right now. Less than, I mean, you all, uh, you know, pay mm -hmm. much more than 0%, I'm sure. And so that's not an exaggeration. They're paying zero. They're paying zero. Oh, yeah. That's not like zero is not a, you know, <laughs> right. like a okay. euphemism for some number. <laughs> so, um, and it's not unusual. Like if you look at their lifetime taxation rate, it's something like 3%. Um, so there'll be zero in some years, five in others. Mm. 
So uh, you have to ask yourself, okay, uh, you're going to have a revenue problem in this country if your biggest companies are paying zero or near zero in taxes. And it's not just uh, Amazon, it's Google, it's Facebook, it's Netflix. Netflix also paid zero in taxes last year. So these are some of the biggest companies in our society. And so then you look at it and say, okay, why are they paying zero? And the reason they're paying zero is we have a corporate income tax system that is pretty easy to game. You pay your executives a lot in stock compensation, you can expense that. You have a global business, you can push all of the earnings through Ireland or the Caymans or Bahamas or whatever the heck. Uh, And so these companies play a lot of games. And so then you look and say, well, what did other countries do when they were faced with the same situation? And every other advanced economy in the world has something called a value-added tax, where if you're um, selling something, then you pay a, a toll. And so if you imagine that in Amazon's case, then all of a sudden you'd have a lot of tax revenue very, very quickly because they sell a lot of stuff. So instead of zero in taxes, you would get billions. Uh, and so that's the change I want to make. And the trick with my plan is that I want to take the billions we get from Amazon and then give it to us in mm-hmm. the form of $1,000 mm-hmm. a month. So then if you get this money, what are you going to spend it on? You're going to spend a little bit of it on Amazon again, um, but you're going to spend on other things you want, like... Uh, in your case, it, it might be, you know, food, clothing, education, uh, a car, uh, something along those lines. Um, and then that money just flows back into the economy and ends up creating a virtuous cycle. Mm-hmm. And so the, the plan is to try and get more of the value into our hands and then uh, take a toll when we're spending money with companies like Amazon. So, so what, what happens then if, so do you, do you plan on imposing some, some rules and regulations so that these big corporations can't, uh, you know, create companies like in the Cayman Islands or, or, or Ireland, like you mentioned? Well, this is the beauty of it, David, that if they decide to move themselves to the Cayman Islands and then they sell to us, they still have to pay the toll. Uh, that's why these other countries have done this. And it's like oxygen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's much harder to game um, because these companies are very smart and they're very good at avoiding mm-hmm. paying taxes. So, so how much revenue can be generated from taxing these big corporations? The the estimates are that if you were to adopt a value-added tax at half the European level, you would generate about $800 billion in new revenue uh, per year in the United States, which is enough to pay for a lot of things. And it's enough to pay for a lot of this $1,000 a month that's coming to each of us. And then the, the beauty of this $1,000 a month dividend that we all have is that when we spend it, it just ends up making the economy work better, generates another hundreds of billions in new revenue because your economy has more jobs and uh, activity. So we get some of that money back. We also save money on things like jails and hospitals and homelessness services because a lot of those people need less help. And then we're making our people stronger, healthier, mentally healthier, more productive, also more entrepreneurial and artistic. Because if you imagine a country where everyone's getting a thousand bucks a month, how many more people would want to do what you guys are doing right oh, now? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not worried about working for necessity. Yeah. They're also not worried about literally like starving the next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been a serial entrepreneur now for years and years. It is almost never the case that someone's like, oh my gosh, I'm down to my last dime. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start a business. <laughs> That's not really the way it works. Yeah. It's really like when you start a business, often you have a little bit of uh, security and you feel like you can take a risk. So what we do is we're making our entire culture more entrepreneurial uh, and more enterprising. Mm-hmm. So this is for millionaires and billionaires. They still get the same $1,000 a month. Well, the way the system works is that someone like Jeff Bezos would end up paying hundreds of millions into the system. And so if we try and send him a thousand bucks a month to remind him he's an American, (laughs) (laughs) um, he'd probably take it too. Cause you know, rich people didn't get to being rich by turning down money. (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, So there's some, uh, some people here saying uh, that you are a socialist. What do you have to say to those people? Well, I'm a serial entrepreneur who's run businesses. And what I say to people is that, This is not socialism. This is capitalism where income doesn't start at zero. Us having money, it's good for businesses. It's good for markets. It's good for consumers. And then if you were to get technical and very Asian and smart, you would say the definition of socialism is when a nation's government uh, takes over the means of production, which is not what anyone's talking about here. What I'm talking about is sliding some money to us. We're the owners of the country. 
Um, and so this money's just going to go back into the economy. I see you really seem to like running with the, the Asian stereotypes. I have no issue with it, but I can see some people <laughs> being sensitive about that, especially other Asians. And um, is there is that intentional or is that just always been you? Like the whole math thing and then, you know, talking about, like like you just said, you're an Asian, I'm Asian that likes math. I mean, is it just playing along because you know, you know, middle America is going to, I mean, there's a certain way they view Asian people, right? Yeah. So I know that we have a very diverse community and that the model minority myth is not an accurate depiction of the way many, many um, or most Asian Americans uh, experience life. Uh, and so certainly the last thing I would want to do is somehow uh, perpetuate stereotypes that aren't, you know, like helpful to the community. Uh, but I think most people can tell that I'm joking. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're po- they're po- they are stereotypes, yeah. but they're positive ones. So. And, and, and you definitely know your math. That, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. thanks, man. Right. So, uh, so I think people generally know that, like, I'm I'm sort of poking fun at both myself and the images. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, it's like most people take it in the same spirit. Right. But I think, like, you know, I mean just based off the internet, I'm sure you see voices and opinions from everyone. I'm thinking like when you become the nominee, right? Don't you think that's going to be used against you a lot? Like, I mean, even I I can just picture like Trump being like, you know, how are you going to work with China? Conflict of interest, you know? Well, our, our office has a wager on what his nickname is going to be for me. And (laughs) we've, we've come up with comrade Yang. Okay. Cause it's a little racist, a little like communist socialist. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I think people are going to realize that it's not going to work so well on me in part because mm. if you listen to me for five seconds, like I sound like the least socialist dude around because I'm literally like, you know, like an entrepreneur who's run mm-hmm. businesses. And uh, I think the uh, anti-Asian thing is also a real loser for him. Uh, you know, what's really interesting is that I am one of the few candidates in the field that Donald Trump has never tweeted at or acknowledged. Oh, really? Scared. And, and he said something at a rally in West Virginia where he said he's excited to run against all the Democrats. And his only concern is that someone new comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And mm. that's me. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a similar profile that I'm from outside the system. And I am one of only two candidates in the field that over 10 percent of uh, Donald Trump voters said that they would support. Uh, and so that means if I'm the Democratic nominee, we win, mm-hmm. in part because the attacks that he would use on politicians don't really work on me. S- speaking of Donald Trump and, and the 10% that you mentioned, how do you plan on reaching out to the the rest of the 90? You know, I, I'm uh, one of the candidates who's willing to go on Fox, and, like talk to people from different mm-hmm. yeah. parts of the aisle. And I can make... You know, what's been fun is, like, I've been meeting tons of Trump voters campaigning around the country. And a lot of them like me, in part because they can tell that I'm not really uh, talking down to them in any way. Like, I just look at them and it's like, hey, yeah, like, some of this shit really sucks. Like, we got to try and solve some problems. They're like, oh, that's different. (laughs) You just seem like a real dude. Even in the debates, you talked about it not having, like, everybody was talking about you not having a tie, you know. And how, why does that matter so much? Like, why is that as important? Especially the Brian Williams, man. What the heck's with Brian Williams and his fixation on neckwear? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I think that's what, what, I mean, that's my, for for once, I feel like when I'm watching the debates and I hear you talk, I feel like for me personally, I'm actually interested. And I, I tried to figure out, am I biased because you're Asian? Or is it just because the way you, I don't know, pretty much just seem like a normal person. It doesn't seem staged, if that makes sense. You and I'm sure you're calculated. Like yeah. Thank you. I'm happy to say that there are many people of every different background who've said the same thing to mm-hmm. me, white, black, Asian, where you're like, oh, you seem like a normal dude. That's one reason why I'm here having this conversation right. with you all is that I, I wanted to lean into the fact that I'm a normal dude who decided to run for president because I saw how fucked up shit is getting. And it's not going to unfuck itself, honestly. I mean, mm-hmm. like, it's really broken. Very, very badly broken. I'm now deep into the process. I'm sixth in the race to become the nominee. And I see how badly we need to win <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I, I see the machinery around me. And it's not designed to solve the problems. Uh, it's designed to make certain people money. It's designed to keep certain things the same so certain people can make money. And the people, problems, challenges of this era are secondary. 
uh, the feedback mechanism in our government is essentially broken. Mm-hmm. And it's one reason why Donald Trump became our president is that s- tens of millions of Americans were so fed up. They were like, let's take the bet on the narcissist reality mm-hmm. TV star. It wants to drain a swamp. It can't be worse than what we're getting now. And so that that's the lesson that Democrats need to really listen to this time around, where you can't say, you know what, our antidote is going to be business as usual. Mm-hmm. Because many Americans don't think business as usual was working. And many Americans made the same choice that you all have made, which is like, I'm just not going to pay attention to this shit Mm -hmm. because it's not relevant to my life. It's depressing. They're talking about stuff that in ways that does not seem relevant to me. Uh, So the fact that it's a very rational choice to ignore this stuff is a sign of the fact that we need to change things. Mm -hmm. So so besides the thousand dollars a month that you're proposing, um, how because we have a lot of younger viewers here and uh, a lot of first time voters as well. Uh, why should these young folks vote for you? Like besides the thousand dollar a month, I'm really passionate about this because uh, how old are you all? Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Thirty two. Thirty three. Uh, I'm forty four, uh, and wh- what I'm passionate about is that we have left a total mess to young people in particular. And then the worst thing is we blamed them for it. Been like somehow it's your fault, <laughs> you know. It's, uh, where, the, I mean, the clearest examples are that we've gotten rid of a lot of the secure livelihoods and jobs um, moving forward. Ninety-four percent of the new jobs that are getting created in the United States are temporary gig or contract work that don't have benefits and have a very precarious path forward. Think Uber driver yeah. as an example, mm-hmm. or YouTuber. Or a YouTuber, because I know you guys have to scratch and claw. I get it. And then you have to, you know, you put out a video and then you have to be like, oh, how's it going to perform? And then, you know, it's like, it's it's hard. Like, everything's hard. So that's where the economy has gone. And then we made college two and a half times more expensive, mm-hmm. where you look at the price tags. Holy cow. There's, someone just told me today, like, you know, some of these schools are like 60000 a year. Mm-hmm. So if you want to attend for four years, it's like a quarter of a million dollars. So if you're a young person watching this, you're like, what the F? You know, you're looking up at that. And, uh, and then you look at climate change and say, hey, turns out weather's going to get worse and it's going to get hotter and the sea level's going to rise and there are going to be storms and floods and droughts and problems. Um, active shooter drills in schools. You go to school and you're like, what the heck's going on? Like kids actually have to practice for this stuff. Mm-hmm. So if, if you're a young person, you look up and you say, why does it seem like things are going so poorly and that the world I'm inheriting is not really set up for me to thrive and succeed and be happy and prosperous and even have a secure livelihood? By the numbers, and I'm a numbers person, if you were born in the 1940s in the United States of America, you had a 93% chance of doing better than your parents. That's the American dream. Wow. Like you're, you know, your mm-hmm. kids are going to do better than you are. If you were born in the 1990s, which I guess is some of you, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you're down to a 50-50 chance. Mm. And guess where the th- 2000s are going? It's not going back up. <laughs> so it went 93, wow. 50-50. And then for a young person now, you're looking at a less than 50% chance of doing better than your parents. Mm-hmm. You know who's figured this out? Your parents. They're looking up being like, wow, I'm not sure my kid's going to have a better life. Mm-hmm. You know who else is figuring it out? The kids. <laughs> the kids are like, why does it seem like uh, things are not going to go better for me? So this is the mess, the shambles that young people are inheriting. And then young people are being blamed for it because we're saying it's like somehow your fault because culture, lazy, smartphone, social media. I don't know even what the accusation is. It doesn't make any sense. Being a millennial. Being a millennial, right. You don't want to pay your dues. Whatever like the nonsense narrative is. To clarify, when you say a better life, what exactly? Because you said you did the math on it. Like what exactly are the calculations? Like what are you basing that off of? Just money or... Yeah, so so when I said the ninety three percent, the fifty percent, and a better life, right? That was straight socioeconomic success. Are you going to make more money than your parents did? Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, is that the end all be all? Obviously, no. I mean, there's there are a lot more important things in life mm-hmm. than your paycheck. Yeah. Um, but if you had to go society wide and try and figure out are things getting better or worse for people, that would be a good place to start. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if you're a young person, you have these concerns and misgivings about the world you're inheriting, the country you're being left. Uh, you're not sure the country is really working for you. And it is not working for you. Uh, it's right now not even designed to work for you. Mm-hmm. So the goal has to be to change that. And I'm a parent. Now I've got six and four-year-old boys. And I want to be able to look them in the eyes and say, we're going to leave you a country that we can actually be proud of that uh, is as good as the country I came to, and, and my parents immigrated to this country, uh, met as graduate students at Berkeley here in California. They had me and my brother, uh, and 
it's been great, uh, you know, in the sense that they came here for better opportunities. And uh, my, you know, I just became an uncle yesterday. Like my, oh, congrats. Congrats. Um, congrats. yeah, I haven't met her yet because I'm busy campaigning for president. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of which, how has that affected your, like, your actual personal life? Like, I'm sure, I mean, I, I'm not sure actually with your wife and your kids, like, it's, it's got to be tough and it's got to be, there's got to be some, I don't, I'm just assuming things right now. I'm assuming you guys are fighting and stressful or like, because yeah. you're not there. No, it's right? very human, man. Uh, it's the biggest downside of running for president is I don't get to see my kids as often. Uh, I'm on the road a lot. Uh, I would miss my, you know, I have FaceTime my wife this morning. Um, she's been a superstar champ. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's been a rock. If anyone's making a sacrifice in this race, it's her uh, because my kids are a lot of work. All kids are a lot of work. Like mm-hmm. uh, my kids are a lot of work. And so... Uh, I want to be able to do that work with her, but I'm not able to right now. So she's taking it on the chin. Uh, yeah, it's it's a definite change in your personal life. Um, yeah, that, that's the biggest downside of running for sure. Was she all in when you told her you were going to do this, or was she like, "This is crazy, uh, crazy"? She <laughs> well, there's definitely a part of the crazy element. Definitely was right. there, um, but. She thinks that I'm being driven by a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's Christian and and believes that I'm doing what I, I'm meant to do. Are you as well? Uh, I grew up uh, in a secular household, but I have many family members who were brought up Christian. And obviously my wife's Christian and we're uh, raising our boys uh, Christian. Um, so I go to church every Sunday. I'm home. Um, uh, but I grew up secular. Mm, okay. I wanted to go back to the changes that you wanted to make. So let's say hypothetically speaking, you become president, you have four years. Do you actually think you can make a meaningful impact knowing that a lot of different sectors like the energy sector, big pharma, they're owned by lobbyists. And you were just mentioning that earlier. I was just curious to, to see like, what is your strategy if you want to make change? Yes. So, uh, so a thousand bucks a month would be a game changer for tens of millions of Americans. So then the next step is how do you, we get the government working for us instead of the lobbyists? And right now, the lobbyists have essentially taken captive our um, legislator, legislators. So the way we break that uh, captivity is we give everyone in America who's an adult, again, uh, d- 100 democracy dollars a year that you can only give to candidates or campaigns or causes that you like and value. This would wash out lobbyist money by a factor of eight to one. Wow. Because you have to look up and say, what rules can I put in place that'll keep the rich people and the corporations from uh, getting a hold of the legislators? Very, very hard. Mm-hmm. It's like life in Jurassic Park. Money finds a way, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like like the corporate lobbying money would just like still get its way in there. Mm-hmm. And so the new plan should be to wash out the corporate money with people-powered money. I've been running for president now for a while, and I have to say, I'm incredibly fortunate where we've now raised millions of dollars in increments of only like $25 each. Just people donating, you know, $15, $20 to the campaign. But for the vast majority of people who are running for office, they have two things. They have the people and they have the money. Yes. And so they, over time, they started listening to the money because it's easier to measure. The food is better. The people can give them jobs afterwards. <laughs> I think this is where they end up falling. So what we have to do is we have to combine these two things. We have to make it so the people and the money are in the same place. And then if you're a legislator and the lobbyist comes and says, hey, I've got a $50,000 check for you, you can be like, I'm getting uh, $5 million from my voters, my constituents. I'm not going to go against them for your $50,000. But right now, asking um, legislators to ignore all the money when that's where their bread is buttered, is just not realistic. So this democracy dollar that you're talking about, is this essentially U.S. dollar? Well, you know, the great thing is democracy dollars, it's been rolled out in certain communities here in the U.S. It's been rolled out in other countries. So you can even imagine it being something as simple as you get a coupon code in the beginning of the year, and then anytime you want to give to a candidate or campaign, just use your coupon mm-hmm. code, and then they you know, reference the code against uh, the federal database, and then they just get the, the money. I saw that you're one of the few candidates who's also accepting cryptocurrencies. I was curious on what are your thoughts on Bitcoin? Uh, I have many friends in the cryptocurrency community, and I'm a believer in the the, uh, underlying technology in particular. Uh, The blockchain has a world of potential. It's like a lot of other technologies where um, right now uh, the 
hype sort of got a little bit overblown and ahead of yeah, itself. The ICO, all and, the, and the rest of it. But then the underlying technology is uh, very powerful. And so what happens in these cycles, it tends to be that the hype gets in front of it and then the air comes out of the bubble, but then the reality ends up catching up over time. Have you thought about, I mean, this is just hypothetical. UBI could essentially be universal Bitcoin income. No. That instead of the money uh, being taxed, um, essentially it could be based on a hard asset like a Bitcoin. Yeah. And Satoshi's is, you know, you can fraction out Satoshi's. 100 million units, 100 million units to people. I love where your head is. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, I learned a lot from my friends in the cryptocurrency community around some of these principles. And when you start to think, of, it's one reason why just about everyone in the cryptocurrency community loves the idea of universal basic income yeah. or the freedom dividend. And I love that you care about data and you believe people should own their data. They should get paid for their data. Yeah. I mean, look at Facebook. They made so much money selling so our data. so much money. Uh, and, and so what I, I say to people sometimes is like, do you remember getting your data check in the mail? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, no. But someone's getting your data check yeah. in the mail. I mean, the, these uh, trillion dollar tech companies are profiting to the tune of billions of dollars off of our data. And the interesting thing is our data could actually become more valuable if we were participating in some way. Um, right now, it just gets kind of anonymized and sold and resold without our knowledge, uh, and it could become more valuable if we were part of the um, part of the process. Do you have any plans to implement that? Like, how would you go about that? Yes, I do. So, one of the policies on Yang2020.com is your data as a property right, and so the plan would be to say to companies that are profiting from our data that there are a few principles you have to adhere to. Number one is you have to tell us what you're doing and how much money you're making. Um, number two is you have to let us express preferences as to how much or how little of our data uh, that we want to be made available. And number three, you have to let us turn it off if we want. Um, mm-hmm. But part of the number one is like, tell us how much value there is, is that uh, they have to share the value with us. Mm-hmm. So I'm just being, I'm a normal dude. So <laughs> what do normal dudes do when they see that giant, like, uh, you know, click and agree thing? They just ignore all yep. the verbiage <laughs> and hit mm-hmm. click, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, that's what we all do. And so we should be able to keep doing that because I love convenience as much as the next person. But if you're making money off me, <laughs> you know, you have to cut me in on the deal. Yep. And so, yeah. And so that, that's where, what I want us to be at is essentially at a certain point, you express your preference. You're being like, look, I love convenience. Just give me some of the convenience back to my pocket. Mm-hmm. And then if I ever want to change my mind on that, I can do so. Right. Just for like, I mean, like, a ballpark because I have no idea what kind of numbers are you thinking for a person's you know I have no idea how much that's worth so right now the our data is worth a different amount depending upon who you are Mm -hmm. if you travel a lot your data is worth a lot more Mm -hmm. because then they just want to sell you like hotel chains and stuff (laughs) and stuff um if you have some kind of um, health condition your data is worth a lot more sometimes people's health data is getting sold for thousands of dollars really per so, user per user wow. so it's so, really based on how much you consume essentially whether it's there yeah there are different factors that affect how valuable your data is but it can get into the thousands per user but you are saying you want to take a piece of that and give it to the person who's essentially giving it yes because it's our data so dope well, i mean That's why awesome. who else should be getting the value you know what I mean? <laughs> well most of us didn't know it was even happening yeah. you know I mean, until that documentary came out recently on Netflix telling us basically that... that yeah, it's good timing. Out. Yeah, seriously. Um, okay. Yeah, we should go into the environment. So um, you mentioned <laughs> that... Man, we, you mentioned we're 10 years... Uh, you say it's a <laughs> yeah, little pessimistic. Sad. I know. But <laughs> I mean, like, that's... I appreciate the honesty. Yeah, we're, we're 10 years late uh, when it comes to saving the environment. Uh, what are some things that you want to do as, uh, you know, as president to kind of uh, slow this, this, uh, this thing down? Yeah, the climate change, um, we have to do a whole lot more. I just released a five-point plan, uh, which includes some of the stuff you probably hear from other places, which is try and move towards renewables. The big piece of the puzzle is that 85% of the world's emissions are from non-U.S. sources. So if you want to try and curb emissions in a serious way, then you have to go to Africa and say to them, you know that Mm coal-burning power plant that China's installing for you for free? I'm going to try and convince you that these solar panels and wind turbines are a better option. And so then you have to subsidize that to a very uh, high degree if you're going to make that competitive. Uh, The third thing is that we should be trying to 
make our communities more resilient and literally and figuratively move our people to higher ground where you know if there's a hurricane who suffers poor people who don't have great shelter or cars they can get into to drive away and anyone who thinks this stuff is a little doom and gloom we were already moving climate refugees in the united states we already took a town of people in louisiana where their land had essentially become underwater and uninhabitable and we mm-hmm. said well it's time to move you so if we're doing that there, then we should start looking at other places where, frankly, that's starting to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's happening in more and more places around the country, not just Louisiana. Uh, the fourth thing is that we have to try and undo some of the damage we're doing. So that involves reforesting tracts of land. It involves uh, trying to repair some of the oceans by seeding plankton beds. It sounds a little far out, but 4 to 8% of marine life in the Atlantic Ocean is dying Wow. Now, every year. So if you extrapolate that over time, um, you're talking about massive, massive problems. And so we can't just try and do less of the bad. We have to try and undo some of the damage. Um, so those are some of the plans I have on climate change. I just released a $5 trillion plan uh, to try and take those steps. The, these are things that you've, I'm assuming you've worked with scientists or something, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You said it's already 10 years too late though, right? It's 10 years too late to keep the earth from warming. Okay. The earth is going to warm. Mm -hmm. It is already warming. The last four years have been the four warmest years in recorded history, which Mm -hmm. sounds like a remarkable coincidence. I mean, it's not a coincidence. It's because the earth is warming. (laughs) July was the warmest year in recorded history. So when I say it's 10 years too late, it's 10 years too late to, to keep the earth from warming in a significant and measurable way. It's never too late to start trying to... Uh, repair damage, make our communities more resilient, make your economy more sustainable. Uh, There's a proverb, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is now. It's like one of those situations. Like, should we have done it 10 years ago or 20 years ago? Of course. In the absence of having done that, do we need to take dramatic action now? Yes. Mm -hmm. Essentially, you're also providing more jobs, like infrastructure jobs for people to build. Yeah, I was just with, this is going to sound so politician-y, but I was just with (laughs) this uh, entrepreneur, Ned Reynolds in New Hampshire, and he now has 260 solar installers working for him uh, who are just putting panels on Mm -hmm. people's roofs. And that's a really good job. And we need it. And it's going to make us more energy efficient. And it's going to lower people's heating bills. So it's just a win-win-win. Those are the kinds of jobs we need to be creating in very large numbers. Uh, Trump said that he brought back many manufacturing jobs more than anyone thought possible. Is that an accurate statement? Uh, It's an accurate statement that there's been a slight bounce back in manufacturing employment. But big picture, we were at 17 million manufacturing jobs around 2000. And then we went all the way down to uh, 12 million or so. So that's 5 million loss. And now we're somewhere between 12 and 13 million. So has there been a bounce back? Yes. Uh, Have uh, Donald Trump's policies had something to do with it? Presumably, yes. Um, Is this partially Donald Trump just blowing his own smoke like usual? Also, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Why is it that whenever I, um, I mean, I watch everything, not just like Fox or CNN or either side. Whenever I see the pro-Trump side, it's always, you know, the economy is doing great, much better under Trump. Um, and then I watch, I just see counter, it's just all counter arguments and, it, and it, what's the truth? <laughs> like why, why, why are there numbers supposedly that support that under Trump, everything's better, the economy? The major, there, there are a few economic moves that Donald Trump's made. The two big ones were a tax cut and the second one was the trade war with China. So the tax cut, cut corporate taxes by $1.5 trillion dollars, um, which ended up boosting the economy in a particular way. That is true. Only 6% of that, those gains went to workers. The vast majority of it went to shareholders of corporations and buybacks and the rest of it. So have you seen better economic numbers at the top line? Mm -hmm. Yes. Was that the right way to go? 100% no. That was a terrible way to go. Um, because that 1.5 trillion tax cut ended up just boosting the deficit, which you know we're going to eventually have to do something about. And then the trade war has been a huge net negative for the economy. So if you were to go and say, "Hey, Donald Trump's been good for the economy," 
it's narrowly true if you ignore the fact that he also increased our deficit by hundreds okay. of billions of dollars. And if you were going to, for example, spend a trillion and a half dollars, I've got a great idea. Why not just give it to the American people mm-hmm. in the form of a dividend? And instead of having it all go to corporate buybacks, mm-hmm. it would go right back in the economy into our hands. It would increase uh, the actual health of our people because that's what happens when money is in our hands. We end up becoming uh, healthier, mentally healthier uh, better educated, like all these good things happen. So to me, it was a tragic misuse of resources that went directly to the corporations that needed it the least. Okay. So it's just selective reporting then. Yeah. It's like, if, if you were to want to tell a story, it's like Trump's been great for yeah. GDP. It's like, sure. I just don't know enough. I don't know enough. So I'm just like kind of seeing both sides. Cause I don't want to just w- pick one side and just go with it. Cause they're so conflicting, you know? Well, you've summarized a, a big problem uh, today in America is that you have different news silos, people getting news from different mm-hmm. sources. No one can agree on anything. And some of these channels don't even pretend anymore. Like sometimes they get called out on bad reporting and they're like, we're an entertainment business. We're not mm-hmm. a news business. And then you're like, are you shitting me? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it says news in your name. <laughs> yeah. do, do you have any plans on um, working with those news outlets and maybe, I don't know, figure out a way to make it more accurate <laughs> like reporting fake news and things like that. You know, I, I think that's, um, that's going to become a more serious problem when you have deep fakes and yeah, technological that things that, you know, it's like, then you mm-hmm. really need someone to come in and be like, yo, that video is not real. Yeah. Well, there was a CEO um, who had a deep fake voice of his convinced the CFO to transfer $250,000 into the deep fake voices account. So there's, and this is just the beginning of deep fake. Um, what is, uh, sorry, what is deep fake? It's essentially when you do either a video or audio that sounds like, or looks like a person, but I made it up. But now the technology is <laughs> so good that it's indistinguishable. Right, okay. Well, in and, fact. And it's so indistinguishable <laughs> that even if you know it's a fake, you can't actually necessarily like, like uh, say this is a forgery. Mm-hmm. I know. That's it's terrifying. so frightening. That's Scary. terrifying. Yeah. I mean, that could be like the end of society where it's like you, no one can trust anything. We have mm-hmm. to confirm each other by memory. <laughs> yeah. like only a memory that yeah. we would I'll go back to campfires. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a solution for sure. Yeah. Um, what would you say are some things that uh, these young people should be studying in order to secure a job for the, for the future since AI is taking over the world? Mm. Um, so here's the good news. According to the projections, well, this is not good news, but I'll present it as good news. <laughs> <laughs> hope, hope. That's, um, that's, that's what's more important. The proportion of jobs that are likely to be lost to automation, the range of estimates is between uh, 20 and 44%, which still means that a majority of jobs will continue to exist. So it's not like, you know, end of uh, work as we know it. And the work that will still be available to us all um, falls into two main categories, non-repetitive manual work and non-repetitive cognitive work. So I'll start with non-repetitive cognitive. This is like team building, interpersonal, creative, stuff like you do, uh, design, um, some of the STEM fields. Uh, So that stuff is going to be with us for a long, long time. Sales, like you're always going to need sales, these sorts of things. Non-repetitive manual are things like plumbing, and HVAC repair and a lot. Like, can you imagine what it would take to make a robot plumber? It'd be next to impossible. Yeah. Can you imagine it's a robot plumber? It's expensive too. Yeah, it's, it's too expensive. So that there, so, so there are going to be jobs that are with us for a long time. On the high end, you want, what I say to young people, and this is gonna sound like that like bullshit movie advice you got that um, there was a period where like, I don't believe that advice, but it's going to become better advice over time it's really important to find something that you enjoy and like, uh, because if you enjoy it, then you're more likely to invest time in it and become good at it and develop um, like skills that are, are uh, resilient over time. So believe it or not, if you're a young person, you can find something you really enjoy doing, you should lean into that. Uh, and a lot of that revolves around interpersonal dynamics and skills because team building is going to become crucial over time in, in a world where, uh, you know, dealing with people is going to become a massive value add. So that that's one thing I'd say is, and it, it sounds like 80s movie is advice or something, but um, if you can find something you like doing, just really try and get good at it. Mm-hmm. Can we go into foreign foreign policy? Sure. Uh, so uh, I'll get my presidential hat on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, how 
Do you have plans to continue President Trump's uh, like confrontational approach to China uh, economically and, and geopolitically? Uh, I think one of the traps that the U.S. tends to get itself into um, is uh, seeing the world as a zero-sum game where if someone else is doing better, then it's somehow like hurting us. And I, I think that is going to drag us into a Cold War with China or worse. Um, and to me, we have to see that other countries can become more successful, and it's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing for the U.S. Are there things in the U.S.-China relationship that are um, serious issues that we need to try and address, like their piracy of our intellectual property and increasingly um, uh, some of the things that are going to happen in terms of human rights and uh, and their um, the protesters and, and other things? Like, yeah, they're very, very serious issues. Um, but is China's success necessarily um, destructive to the U.S.? Like, I, I don't believe so. So we have to take that stance where we protect America's national interest, but do it in a disciplined way um, where we also don't confuse economic success and national security. If something's national security, then you have to go hard, and that, that's just the stance. But the economic interests sometimes get confused with security interests in a way that I think is not very productive. What, what about North Korea, Middle East? Well, uh, I think engaging with North Korea is not a bad thing. I think engaging with foreign leaders that we disagree with is generally productive. And so I wouldn't, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, Donald Trump did something wrong. Where he went wrong with North Korea is that he kept meeting with Kim Jong-un without clear parameters in terms of what he needed to get out of the meeting either before or during. And he's had this all or nothing approach to the diplomacy and denuclearization where there are goals you can set that are short of complete denuclearization. That would have been very, very good for the U.S. That if you're going to meet with, with him, then that sh needs to happen. Uh, and this is personal for me. My sister-in-law is in Seoul right now. So anything that happens in the, uh, in the Korean peninsula, you know, it actually affects family members. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, if you had to choose, what country outside of the USA would you say is doing a pretty good job of running their country? Uh, I think that uh, Denmark and the Scandinavian countries have done a really good job of helping um, build robust social safety nets and structures that have helped people manage very, very difficult transitions. And I think we can learn a lot from them. But do you think they're able to do that because it's a smaller country compared to the U.S.? And the U.S. being like a melting pot of so many different cultures. Yeah, they, they have some advantages uh, in terms of their ability to, to get some of these things done. And to me, one of the great challenges for the United States is to be able to get great things done despite being heterogeneous. Mm -hmm. You know, like it shouldn't be that we all have to look exactly the same to get mm -hmm. big things done. You know what I mean? <laughs> Okay, well, I mean, we were just instructed that you have like five more minutes. So before oh, no. you go, I yeah, have to minutes. ask you something. Oh, 10 minutes. Uh, before you go, um, there's something I wanted to ask you. And uh, see, they said five minutes. Oh, fuck. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts about aliens? And, you know, Bernie Sanders came out on Joe Rogan's podcast, which you also did, and said basically if he becomes president, he is going to, what did he say? He's going to like release the information about aliens and the truth and stuff like that. <laughs> they all say that. They do, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm, we're they talking get told to the you. Truth, they get yeah. told the truth and exactly. we're like, it's too scary to share. In national security. Like, it's, a, you know, I am on the same page. I will share what's going on with aliens with the American people unless it's just too damn scary Dangerous. to share. And so then, don't, but, uh, don't you think that's already happened then? Like, I mean, I've seen interviews. It's like conspiracy theorists say like, uh, you know, Barack Obama went on certain interviews and he kind of hinted at it, but he doesn't want to say it. He said he was going to release that stuff too, right? So let's just say my threshold for uh, not sharing would be astronomically high. Like I would share it unless it really would. <laughs> like, I think, like I think we're ready up. for the truth. Like millennials, like we grew up watching every alien movie. That's where I am. Yeah. People it, believe like, it. Already. You know, yeah. uh, I, I think. We grew up watching X-Files. Yeah. So let's just say that I would like to be able to be transparent about okay. these things with the American people. Okay. Pretty much, I'm a regular dude. What would a regular dude do in this situation? That's what I'm saying, but like, it, it always everything. seems like that. It always seems like a regular dude until they become important, right? They become the president or some somebody, and then and then somebody gets to them. The lobbyist gets to them. One, yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, then, one of one of my primary qualifications to be president is that I think I'm um, fairly unchanged through this process. You know what I mean? Definitely. Like, like, so like far. after I become. <laughs> president too mm -hmm. like, like there's so many trappings of uh the office that i 
could take or leave. You know, I just want to solve the problems. I'm on yeah. the record saying, like, if I could solve the problems without being president, I would take yeah. that too. Like, I don't have any mm. native intrinsic burning desire to be president. <laughs> Which means you would help another candidate. Hmm? If you weren't the nominee, you'd help another candidate. Oh, yeah. I had one of my major life's goals. It was to, like, to elevate a major national candidate. Um, and and, my, and my, my wife saw these goals. And you know what was not on the list? Be a major <laughs> national candidate. <laughs> that was actually not on the list. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe that's partially an Asian thing, too. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't have to think about that. I know that. what you mean. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, that's a healthy yeah, attitude. Being low-key yeah. and... Or just, yeah. like, you want to get the stuff done. Yeah. And, like, being front and center is not... You don't need to be yeah. the guy. You just want to get the solutions. Yeah. yeah. That's right. In the group project. Okay. Well, that's what awesome. we need. America needs solutions and a smart president. Oh, thank you for yes. saying so. I think Likeable. so too. Likeable for change. Oh. <laughs> um, nice, okay. Guys. Well, before we get going, where can people go to support you? If you'd like to join the Yang Gang, just go to yang2020.com. Give a buck, five bucks. It makes a huge difference because the media keeps track of number of donors as a measurement of support. Mm-hmm. Um, so yang2020.com, you'll see all of my policies and plans there. We also have a really fun social media uh, presence. Not as fun as yours, but... <laughs> Um, you know, we have, a, we have like videos and a lot of people are making art about me and the campaign, which mm-hmm. is a lot of fun and awesome. And some of it, MC Jin did uh, the Yang Yang Anthem. I don't know if you saw that. I haven't. Um, so if, if you want to get started, is. though, it's like yang2020.com. Uh, and uh, let's take the country back and make it work for young people in particular. Awesome. Well, I always said I was uh, uh, very interested in you and I wasn't going to consider myself Yang Yang. Until I met you. And I will say to the people uh, watching, the reason why I was hesitant is I wanted to see if you're you when you're not, you know, on TV and stuff. And I will say you're exactly the same. So <laughs> it's awesome. That's and so it's so, yeah. It's, it, thank you again for being here. It's, it's, this is a big deal for us. Like yeah. <laughs> for you to come to like David's house and do this little podcast when you're on like Fox and all these other big things, Joe Rogan's podcast. It's awesome. Uh, you guys are awesome. You guys are inspirational. Uh, you know, we need more people in our community in particular to be creative, make art, and express our point of view. So I, I'm an admirer of your work a great deal. I know that you don't feel it as much because you're in it every day. You're like, you're doing it. And you're like, oh, we're just doing our thing. But there's so many, and there are a lot of people who, when I said I was uh, coming your way, they were excited. So, you know, like it's a great opportunity for me. Awesome. Well, great. Thank you so Thank much. You. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate it. So honor. don't sell yourself short. Ah, you, guys right. are, you guys rock. All right. Well, don't forget <laughs> us when you're president. So yeah. we'll uh, run this thing back again from the White House. Yeah. That's a promise. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can follow us at Off the Pill on Twitter and at Off the Pill Podcast on Instagram. And how we always end this, we basically just breathe into the mic. So in three, two, one. You're not really doing it, are you? Oh, I definitely am. Oh. You can pick that up. <laughs>